Welcome to this podcast called Curious About Recovery. I am Kirsten Honeyball. I am your host. And in this podcast, I will be diving deep into eating disorders, which are complex and challenging to navigate. So whether you're a sufferer, a professional, a family or loved one of a sufferer, you can join me as I get curious by interviewing professionals, chatting to eating disorder survivors and sharing my personal experience with an eating disorder so that you can better understand various perspectives remove stigma, hear inspiring testimonies, and simply get curious about all things eating disorder related. I would like to put out a trigger warning. These episodes explore the topic of eating disorders and some content may be triggering to listeners. Topics explored may mention, but are not limited to, trauma, diets, food and body types, suicide, mental illness, substance use, self-harm, violence, gender identification topics, and more. Please take care before listening to any episodes. It's important to note that this podcast is not aimed to diagnose, treat, or cure any form of mental illness and should not be seen as a replacement for treatment of eating disorders. Everything said here is expressed in relation to personal and professional opinions and listeners should be encouraged to view these episodes as an open-minded exploration of various possibilities and perspective rather than hard facts and solutions. Please take what applies or resonates with you and leave the rest. And if you're struggling with an eating disorder, don't hesitate to reach out to me at Kirsten at kirstenhoneyball.co.za. On today's show, we have Dr. Susan Perkins. She earned her master's degree in marriage and family therapy from Hardin-Simmons University in 2003 and her PhD in marriage and family therapy from Virginia Tech in 2010. She is licensed in North Carolina, Idaho, and Michigan and is able to do therapy online with clients and in any of those states. Dr. Perkins has taught students at master's levels for 12 years and was on the faculty of Northwest Nazarene University in Idaho from 2008 to 2016, where she led the marriage, couple, and family counseling track in the KCREP accredited counseling program. In 2016, she moved to North Carolina and taught at Pfeiffer University. She was also a director of its clinic in Morrisville, Pfeiffer Institute, REACH. She left Pfeiffer University at the end of 2019 to refocus on practicing therapy. She has practiced family therapy at a residential treatment center that focuses on recovery from eating disorders and valued and enjoyed the work and continues to use this knowledge in private practice. The work that she does and the therapy that that she's conducted has mainly been with couples and families and the eating disorder therapy that she provides is mainly to people 17 years and over. So it's really wonderful to have her on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So it's really lovely to have you on the show and I would just love to know a little bit about the work that you do and why you chose to do it. What motivated you to move in this direction? Well, I think big picture, what motivated me to work with families was honestly, when I started learning about family therapy, I was absolutely fascinated by the interplay between the individuals and how influenced we all are by what happens around us and the relationships and the values that we share and that we don't share. And I I just was absolutely enamored with that concept. From there, to be more specific with eating disorders, I 
got into eating disorder work um, when I was ready for a career shift and still wanted to be able to focus on working with families, I was so fortunate that there was a family therapy position at a residential treating disorder center right around the time I was ready to shift. And so I was, when I saw that opening, I was thrilled and was able to um, secure that position and work at Carolina House for a while. I didn't specifically look for an eating disorder treatment center. And to be honest, throughout my career, eating disorders kind of scared me that figuring out how to combine the psychological with the physical, it's a tricky combination. And I didn't enter it specifically looking for working with people with eating disorders, but I'm so glad that that ended up playing out the way that it did and absolutely loved working with families through that process. One of the things that I find the most rewarding in working with families, particularly at higher levels of care, is that I I realized quickly that families dealing with a family member in a residential treatment center, a higher level of care, for many of them, this was the hardest thing they had ever gone through as a family. The most devastating and and scary thing for all of the family members. And they just felt so lost. And it was such an honor to be able to meet them where they were and provide hope and support as they were going through this really difficult experience. I was just so honored to be part of that journey for them. It's a really incredible element of the recovery process, this idea of including the family in the in the healing process. And I think a lot of the time it's what's largely overlooked in people who have a family member who has an eating disorder. So you have mentioned that you work with mostly over 17 years old, so young adults, um, people that aren't necessarily living with the family, they aren't necessarily dependent on the family, maybe now they have support financially through their treatment process or whatever. But you you know, there's a very big difference between helping someone who is an adolescent who is still kind of under the rule and the roof of the family versus someone that is not. And so how do you approach or how do you help families who are in this situation where the person is not a minor? Oh, that's a great question. Because I didn't have experience working with the teenagers, the the children and teenagers who had eating disorders, I had what I think in some ways was the benefit of not carrying over the like the family-based therapy or the Maudsley approach where the parents are very um, involved in and really take over the the eating, um, the nutrition for their child. Um, And I was able to just see what does that struggle look like for emerging adults? And, And to be fair, in the work that I did at residential, we worked with everyone from 17 year olds up to, I think the oldest client that I worked with was early 70s. And I had several people who were middle aged men and women who Um, We're in that treatment center. So the whole gamut, I'll focus a little bit more on the young adult. With the young adults, one of the things that stood out to me right away was there is a significant struggle and a contradiction that the families 
have to face where, on one hand, here's this child that they are scared for their their physical safety, their psychological safety, and this person is ill. This person is needing extra support, just like someone would if they were going through treatment for, I don't know, cancer or learning how to deal with a, a diabetes diagnosis. It's a significant lifestyle change and they need extra support. At the same time, they're also at the stage of life where they're trying to become their own person. They're trying to individuate, establish themselves as an individual. And they're going to fight appropriately in many ways. They're going to fight parents or other loved ones telling them what to do, not just because of the eating disorder, but also because they're starting to establish their own life. They're starting to establish their own identity and their own habits. In many ways, it's really vital that the treatment does not lead the family to revert back to earlier adolescent stages while balancing providing support for the the genuine health needs and risks that are there, but not recreating a dependence. Part of the reality of this is that these are young adults. And once, at least in the United States, once they're 18, they are in charge of their own medical decisions. And they're going to make their own decisions, but no matter what their, their parents or other loved ones are wanting. So treatment has to be realistic to the fact that no one else can control the decisions that person makes. It needs to be able to support them ultimately in creating their own recovery. Where younger, younger ages, to be fair, I think it is the recovery is in some ways, at least behaviorally, more on the parents. And that's tough. That It's not sustainable for young adults and even middle-aged adults. Now, I can definitely relate to this idea of kind of finding your independence versus still being young. It's exactly what happened to me. I went into treatment when I was 22. And I, I actually fought my parents and I was like, I voluntarily went into treatment and then uh, three weeks, three weeks in, I was like, no, they're making me do this. And then I, I wangled my way out, you know, so. <laughs> and, uh, and, yep, that happens so many times. Exactly. But, uh, you know, you mentioned in the previous uh, question, you said, you know, one of the biggest challenges is finding this balance between the physical and the psychological and, and how that has been actually quite intriguing in your personal career as well. And I'd love to ask you, have you found a, a way to work or balance that? And wh what is your insights into this for, for the individual and the family who's, or even the professional who's trying to navigate this process for one of their clients? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will rely on the team approach here. And I'll say, I, I, I think there's a danger anytime a therapist, I won't speak for nutritionists or doctors, but anytime a therapist says, I have figured it out and now I know how to do it. And whoever comes to me, I will be able to get them to do what needs to happen. There's a, a significant danger in that because then it becomes about the therapist mm -hmm. and not about the client. <laughs> and as a, as a therapist, that's beautiful and client-centered. As a person, oh my gosh, it is so hard to stay in that not knowing space and to, and to find confidence in that. So I still struggle and I don't expect that to go away. The way that I've learned to manage that struggle 
and focus on the balance between the physical, the psychological, and I'll say even the relational is to really rely on the treatment team, mm-hmm. particularly with eating. Treatment teams are always, I've never found a treatment team to be ineffective. It's always been rich and important in work that I've done, um, particularly with people with eating disorders, having a nutritionist who's monitoring intake, symptoms, nutrition, micro, all those things, having an individual therapist, having the family therapist, having a physical doctor, being able to take all of that information is so important. One of the symptoms of an eating disorder, just like a a physical symptom of a physical illness, one of the symptoms of an eating disorder is deception. And it is really important to be prepared for the client to be deceptive, to, to not accurately self-report. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having the, the multiple perspectives helps be able to say, okay, if they're telling you this and you this and you this, and this is what we're seeing on their labs, then where do we go from here? What do we really think is going on and where do we go from there? I will also say I probably rely more heavily on the nutritionist and the individual therapist for the behavior piece and specifically focusing on the family allows me to hone in more on the relational, but absolutely one of the biggest components of the relational is how do we get this person to eat? (laughs) And so right there, smack in the middle of the room with the relational conversation, it goes right back to the behavior. And then one of the ways I tend to navigate that in the room with families is by saying, all right, what's going on with this? Let's expand what we're looking at. What happened before, during, and after? What were the feelings? What were the struggles? And then how does that experience combine with the behavior? Mm. And how can we use all of that information to create some new options for next time this needs to happen? And I think it's also tricky for the individuals involved as well. I mean, the first thing of coming into a session with a person that you maybe know on some extent, but not a personal relationship or something. And then you're in this space where you need to share like the deepest, darkest parts of you. And unless you're absolutely 100% ready to face all those deepest, darkest parts, it can become very, very easy to slip into a place where it's like, oh, I can't say this because if I say this, then it's going to seem worse than it is. And, And this is the thing that I always encourage people, and I'm sure you probably do the same, is like, it doesn't matter how bad it is. Like <laughs> it doesn't ha- matter how bad your eating disorder is, how bad your behavior has been, how how bad your thoughts have been. The more that you share, the more open you get, the better the chance that the therapist or the person that's helping has at actually helping you recover. A- and the same for the families, you know, I mean, Families can often have uh, what I call ostrich syndrome, which is sticking their head in the sand to their own flaws and and all of that, you know. And so, I mean, it's a very scary place to navigate. Um, and I remember the treatment center I went to had this big board on the in the lounge, and it said, "There is no recovery without honesty," you know. And and that's always something, even for myself, I have to repeat in my head. It's no recovery without honesty. Da, 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 da. So on like a daily basis, am I being honest with myself where I am, you know? And, um, you know, I think this is, a, it's beautiful that you had this experience at uh, Carolina House where you were able to work with the individuals and the families. And so what were some of the things that you found 
or patterns that you picked up or struggles that people faced when going into residential, residential treatment and how did you help them navigate those situations? Some of the struggles that people have as they enter residential treatment, I, I saw, I would say, maybe two main distinctions, two different groups. One was the people who just found out this was happening for a lot of the, the people who were um, new patients. They would come in blindsided by, oh my gosh, we have this new diagnosis of an eating disorder. We thought things were fine. And all of a sudden, here's this serious illness. And our, our, this person we love is being put into a, a living residential treatment center. Oh my gosh, this is incredibly serious. And the shock of that. And then the other group I think I saw was people who were, had been dealing with this long time. And they, this was maybe their, oh, second, fourth, fifth, tenth residential treatment center. And the struggle there was just so much about maintaining hope, shifting to, from this feeling like a failure to this feeling like how important and valuable that we are being honest about where this, where we are in this process again, and that we're facing it. And this is the next step toward continuing to move forward. So I would say in that second group, that was probably the main struggle. In the first group, oh, it's hard for me to identify a couple main struggles because for some people it was a relief. They knew something was wrong and now they were getting help. For other people, some were in just adamant denial. How dare you say something's wrong with my loved one or the patient? I don't think I'm bad enough. Like this isn't really awful. And for others, yeah, it was just a, a wide range. I, I think the struggle that I found, one of the most important struggles to address when people enter the residential treatment center, or higher levels of care, both for the patient and the parents and loved ones, is the, just recognizing that this is hard. People expect to go to treatment, like you kind of expect to go to the doctor and they figure out what's wrong with you and they give you some, some pills or they give you some treatment and, oh my gosh, thank you, I feel better. Really? Eating disorder? You're laughing. I can see your face. That's awesome. Treatment is the opposite. And for almost every patient, it was, they got there and maybe there was initial you know, adjustment, but a little bit of initial relief. Okay, we're getting help. And then put that eating, those eating disorder behaviors, you have to put that coping skill on the back burner. You have to stop and block people from being able to use those eating disorder behaviors. Well, they were using them for a purpose. They were using them to, to cope with something, whatever it was. And in some way, it was providing a type of relief for that person, as hard as that is to say. And think through that. If you struggle with that concept, think through that carefully because it's a tough concept to, for people to wrap their heads around everyone. And when you block that, all the stuff that the person was not coping with because the eating disorder was providing a, a distraction or a diversion, all those things start to come up. And that's when you start to see comorbidity, um, sometimes significant depression, um, self-harm often will start at that phase of the process. Um, lots of resistance to treatment, patients calling and begging their loved ones to take them home. 
just very, very low distress tolerance. And to be fair, it is extremely distressful. Treatment is tough. So when I say low distress tolerance, I don't mean that they can't handle little things. What I mean is their their recovery is requiring more distress tolerance from them than they know how to give. And it is tough. And so I think what I would say for that adjustment period is stay the course. You have to, it has to get worse before it gets better. Well, maybe it doesn't have to. If it, if that is the process, if it gets worse, you have to go through that before it gets better. If you exit during the time where it's the hardest, you reset that recovery clock. You're right back at the beginning. And now you have even more that you've got to work through because you've reinforced giving up on the, the, the coping and the moving forward process. Um, so stay the course, expect it to get worse before, to get harder before it gets better, but keep going. You got to go through that. And then it does get better. Then there are stages in the future where there's a lot of relief. I think the other thing I would say about that is trust the team. If you don't trust the team, find a team you can trust Mm. and um, don't take anything personally. (laughs) Don't take anything personally. It is, it is a tough process. It's like a, it's like a person screaming at their surgeon for having to put needles and knives in them. And it is so hard. It has to happen. Yeah, when you said that, um, I can almost imagine the process of, of recovery and treatment and all of that being like not taking anesthetic and going for heart surgery, <laughs> you know, like oh. that's, uh, yeah, that, uh, I just got that picture and I was like, well, that accurately describes it for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> it resonates. Yeah. So, so, I mean, uh, I, I almost, it, there's a part of me that my heart breaks for past me because I'm like, oh my gosh, if people like you and knowledge like you existed 10 years ago, maybe it would have been a little bit easier for me at the beginning, <laughs> but, but it's wonderful. That's, I mean, you know, that's why I have this podcast is because I'm so desperate for people who don't know this stuff to now know this stuff, you know, so, you know, and, and one of, one of the things that you emphasize is this importance of healthy relationship in, in any person's life. And uh, why do you feel that this is particularly important for those struggling with eating disorders? Oh, I, you're exactly right. I emphasize the importance of relationships over and over, you know, research on, and I'm, I can send you some references if you want, but research on eating disorders over and over comes back to inconclusive results. Unfortunately, there is not much clarity about what actually is effective in treatment. People are doing a lot of things and there's a lot of research saying you probably, you definitely have to focus on the physical and the psychological and the relational. There's not, there's not a clear sense at all of what works. The one thing that keeps coming back is relationships. Relationships are recovery. Um, Relationships, the person who's struggling with the eating disorder having relationships that that make the struggle worth it, relationships that they value more than they value the things that the eating disorder is trying to tell them, um, relationships that they can trust when the eating disorder is so deceptive and so clever and tricky, um, relationships whose voice they can trust over the eating disorder. And even in the therapy, the the research over and over emphasizes the importance of the therapeutic relationship 
over anything that the therapist does or any particular theoretical approach. So that relationships are recovery. Um, But also, I mean, even outside of eating disorders, over and over, research shows that relationships are really the foundational key to happiness. Close, caring relationships, as well as being in a supportive community, that's the key to happiness no matter who you are. So from from a research perspective, so over and over, relationships are the foundation of living a meaningful life. One of, probably one of the key foundations. Yeah, definitely one of the top five, at least, or top three. <laughs> um, but I, I can totally see that in relationships, like, you know, relationships to family, to friends, to colleagues, to freaking our spiritual relationships, our relationships to society, to ourselves, to whatever, you know, this, this how we relate to to the external world and the internal world um, and, and, and nourishing and navigating those in a way that is conducive to our optimal living or healthiest selves, you know, and I, I mean that completely from a perspective of, of um, holistic health. This importance of relationships, like you said, is so pivotal in the ability to lead a happy or fulfilling life. Uh, so w- what about a person who is, you know, stuck in cyclical toxic relationships or has a family that's not supportive of their journey in recovery? Uh, how How do these people cope? How do you What advice do you have for families who are trying to help their loved ones and aren't getting through or the individual who's trying to communicate with, say, their parents or their partner and saying, you know, this is really serious and and they're not being heard? How do you navigate that with with a person? That is so tough. That is so tough. I'll say some of the the clients that I just my heart broke with were the ones who genuinely did not or at least they couldn't think of anyone to call for the family therapy sessions, either because they just, the eating disorder had taken over their life from such a young age that they didn't have space in the relationships or what you described um, about some families. You're, and you're exactly right. Even families with wonderful hearts and wonderful intentions often get it wrong. I think we all get it wrong sometimes. <laughs> Even families with wonderful intentions and depth of love sometimes get it wrong most of the time. Um, some families just are not able to see this as anything other than rebellious and stubbornness, kind of an individual personal flaw rather than a, a mental illness um, and a physical illness. And that is so difficult. Some families are not able to see past um, diet culture and they're not able to, they're not able to be curious enough about um, recovery, about what's happening, about the value of environment. They're not able to say, or I mean, maybe willing and, you know, they've got their own issues happening too, that they're navigating through all this. Some of them aren't willing to let go of a focus on diet and exercise and body shape and size. And that is, it's not just toxic relationships. I think in eating disorder recovery where, you know, anybody could look at a relationship and say, Ooh, that's toxic. Sometimes it's, if there weren't an eating disorder involved, the relationship might be wonderful. But the fact that there's an eating disorder involved means that the things that are happening in the relationship are 
toxic, they're damaging and, and dangerous. Things like parents or loved ones who all they want, all they want to do with their family members is go on strenuous hikes and water rafting. And the only way they know how to have fun is strenuous physical exercise. Well, that can be great for families without an eating disorder. But when there is, that is damaging. That is, it's dangerous. It's physically dangerous for that person in the immediate time, but also long-term. That's one of the things that I really valued about being able to work with the families in these situations Because when you're working with an individual, the only person you can change is yourself. You can't change someone else. When I work with couples, I like to say, the only way you can change another person is to change what you give that person to respond to. So it still comes back to you. And when I worked with, when I work with individuals, I, that is tough. It's so limiting from the family perspective. That's one of the things I really value about working with families is I have the opportunity to at least challenge those mindsets, to at least try to help them, to give the family members all opportunities to see, oh, here's how this could be different. Or, oh my gosh, when we do that, it, it impacts you in that way. I had, I had no idea Every doctor I've ever went, I've ever gone to has said diet and exercise, diet and exercise. I'm so sorry. I thought I was doing what needed to be done. And I love being able to give family members that opportunity. They don't always, they're not always ready to see that. Then we step back and say, okay, given the reality of what your family is and isn't able, willing, ready, whatever it is to do, then what does that mean for you? So... The first thing I do when I work with families like that is try to help, <laughs> try to create openness and shift some of that perspective where possible. Where it's not possible, then I think it's how do we face the constraints, the limitations that that we have to face given our family situation, given who we are and where we are in life and what we're ready for. How do we face that, call it what it is, be honest with ourselves and each other about the impact and ultimately do what we need to for recovery. I will keep coming back and I will own this as my, as my value. And I literally will say this to clients. I will say my value is recovery is the highest priority. And I I also will say, that's what you're paying me for. (laughs) You're not paying me just to have a healthy family. You're paying me to help you be a healthy family in recovery. So I'm going to put recovery as the highest priority. You don't have to. This is your life. And this is, again, where I'm working with adults. You get to decide the values for your life. I want to help you at, at the very least be honest with yourself. If you choose this relationship and if you choose to stay in it in the way that it's going, be honest about how it's impacting you and what that means for you in your future. And if that's the choice you make, it's your life. Just make it with your eyes open. Yeah, I think it's so, we talk a lot about, uh, well, we, we are speaking a lot about this idea of family, families involved in the in the therapy and recovery process. And um, my, my brain automatically goes to, you know, parents with children or parents with uh, maybe not adolescent children, but young adults or something like that. But, you know, another area that you work with is, is marriages and couples. And, and 
I think this can be such a, a challenging thing for a person to come in. Maybe they're in their forties um, or something like that. They have a whole life. They have their children of their own. They have bills and jobs and blah blah blah. And then they have this relationship, and they come into one of them comes into recovery. Then there can be things like an unsupportive partner or a partner who doesn't necessarily understand, like you said, their impact on the eating disorder, um, maybe triggers the things that they're doing, all of that. So, you know, what are the struggles that you see in married couples where one of them is coming in for an eating disorder? And how do you help them through these processes? There are some similarities and some differences. I think I think one of the, one of the main similarities in working with parents and partners is figuring out how to navigate between this is a person I deeply love who needs extra support right now because they're dealing with a significant illness and they are their own person. How do I provide that support without taking over their autonomy or sense of identity? And it's, I think that's one of the common struggles, at least with parents of adult children and partners, honestly, even sometimes the children, the adult children um, of people as they get older. And it is tough. One of the things I, I would emphasize with couples, with anyone, but particularly with couples, is that this is not something you can do for your partner. This is, you, you cannot do recovery for another person, no matter how much you want to no matter how much you wish you could, um, how we wish we could ease the burdens of the people that we love. You can't do it for them. And so telling them what to do or trying to over-function for them will not work. It will create um, resentment. It will create resistance. What does tend to help, and I say it simply, but I know it's not, what does tend to help is supporting the person so that you're coming alongside or behind or underneath that person and supporting them as a person, helping them be a stronger person. And then as you support them as a human being, then they have more strength to do the fight of recovering that they are the only person who can do. That tends to be a lot of what I, kind of the paradigm, the foundation of the paradigm that I emphasize with couples. That's a really beautiful way to think of it as supporting the person rather than necessarily trying to control or uh, do the recovery process for them. I, I see a lot of it happening where a person will think, okay, well, if I just you know, make sure they eat this much and did it kind of, I don't know, like make sure that they don't exercise, make sure that they, whatever it is, is needing to be done. And what I'm hearing from you is like, look at the stuff outside the eating disorder. You know, what are their strengths? Mm -hmm. um, what type of person, what makes them happy? Um, what what troubles them? Um, and then work on those areas instead. Do you have any kind of practical tips for a person who is maybe wanting to support the identity and personality of their partner rather than trying to step into the recovery process in a controlling manner? Like how, how could someone practically do that? I love what you're saying about remembering who the person is as a person and really honoring 
the whole identity of that person. It does get tricky because in some ways, the longer the eating disorder goes on and the stronger hold it has on a person, the more they start to think that their personality is the eating disorder. They start to think they enjoy different foods or they start to think that that over-exercising is what makes them happy. So it is. it does get really hard, but remembering the things that you loved about that person in the very beginning, remembering what brought you together, supporting the the entire person. I think that's kind of the simple, but specific. I, it's hard to think of specifics because I think, I think one specific thing I will say is look for opportunities to have eating disorder free time. Even if it's just 10 minutes a day where you say, or maybe it's, maybe it's, I don't know, while you do dishes after dinner or something where anything, anything eating disorder related is off limits. <laughs> you are not allowed to talk about anything related to that. Have some, give people a break, all of you, a break for even a short period of time. That would probably be the one thing. One of the things that I have found to be helpful is to think of a continuum um, where on one end of the continuum is enabling behaviors where the partner over functions and, and removes the distress from the person and tries to do the work for them. The other side is controlling behaviors where they try to take over and force Um, really try to do the recovery for the person. And then in the middle is supportive and finding that middle. If, if you're in enabling or controlling, you're not helping that, you're not helping your loved one move forward in recovery, finding that area where what you're doing is neither enabling or controlling, but you're supportive. That's your sweet spot. The trick is it's different for everybody. And it's also different at different stages of recovery. Early on in recovery, forcing someone to go to treatment is supportive. Well, assuming they need that level of care. Forcing treatment could be very supportive in in high intensity when the problems get very high intensity. Later on, it might be controlling. And if the person is really, really needing to, to fight and push through hard times, trying to force them to a higher level of care when their team is saying, no, they need to push through this, that could actually be enabling. So paying careful attention to where a person is in their process, how different behaviors impact them can help keep you in a supportive place rather than a controlling or an enabling place. And you have to just kind of stay open and dialogue through that process. Yeah, it's such a it's such a delicate process. The the yeah. person who is supporting the person I mean, it can literally change from day to day as to how that support looks just as much as it can literally change from day to day as to what that person's recovery looks like on a, on a personal level. You know, one one day a certain challenge may be the best thing to, to do for their recovery and another day because of motives and thought patterns and whatever it might be the worst thing to do. And, and, and I think that that's what, like you said earlier, people don't always find themselves fully prepared for when going into the recovery process is it's not you know this 
way that we have in the medical world, which is here's here's a symptom, here's a pill to fix it, and it's done. Um, you know, we really have to acknowledge the roots, acknowledge the fluctuations, the ebb and flow, the ups and downs, and see that it's non-linear. And this can probably be quite frustrating for a lot of individuals and families. And do you find that there are common misunderstandings that people face when going into recovery misunderstandings either from the family's point of view or from the individual's point of view? Yeah, I think one of the most common misunderstandings from the family members when people particularly eat uh, enter higher levels of care, one of the most common misunderstandings was that they would leave fixed. Mm. Um, A lot of family members would say, we just want to go back to the way things were. Things were wonderful. And it is heartbreaking to say to them, were they really? Because that's the environment within which this eating disorder began. And your loved one was suffering. Your loved one was struggling. You might not have known it. You might not have seen it. And absolutely, there were wonderful things. But going back to the way things were is probably going to lead to the same place. So one of the common misunderstandings was, let's get through this treatment process. You'll come home and we'll be back on track and <laughs> life will be what it was before. And that is not, that is, that is, it's not going to work. And that's hard to talk with people about. There's a, there's a very significant grief process. And then I think I saw, just because of where I was in the process, I think I saw the grief process more with the family members than with the person with the eating disorder. But there's a significant grief process to who they thought their loved one was. Eating disorders very often are a hidden um, secret disorder. And there's a lot of, a lot of grief to who you thought the person was, who you, what you thought your relationship would be like in the future. So I would say that's the, within the residential most common was that recovery would be short and quick and They'd come, the treatment team would take care of it. They would feel better soon and they'd come home all fixed. (laughs) Oh, no, that is is not the way it works. Uh, And early intervention makes a huge difference in the path of recovery. So getting that intervention soon, do not hesitate to do higher levels of care early on in the process. The it's essentially kind of a dosage question, a dosage of treatment, basically. Get enough treatment early on to do the amount of shifting that can happen early on so that moving forward, there's a, a solid foundation for recovery rather than kind of putting in different bricks of recovery along the way. That takes a lot longer. What I often see is this conception of, you know, going to recovery and, and a lot of the time, the first day or two, people are smacked with a whole bunch of medications that are now going to help them through the process, right? You know, there's there's been a whole bunch of different uh, thoughts around the idea of putting a person on medication for eating disorder treatment. And I'm not saying yes or no, or people should or shouldn't, but what are the misunderstandings or misconceptions around medicating a person who comes in for eating disorder treatment? Is that anything that you have knowledge on? I have a little, I, there's, there is some research that for particular eating disorders with particular physiological markers, there can be, there can be 
a percentage of those who respond really effectively to medications. Relying on medication is dangerous for any illness, any particularly around the, the mental illness genre, because humans change and grow and our life changes and our environment changes and our physiology changes over time. So relying on that is not going to be adequate long-term. I think it's important for the person with the eating disorder, but also the family member, I think it's important to, to realize that at higher levels of care, particularly um, inpatient, when someone is in a hospital setting, medication at that level is about stabilization. It's not about finding something that will, that will help them long-term. It's about getting them physically and emotionally stable enough that they can tolerate the amount of treatment that will get their body functioning appropriately again. Mm-hmm. It's not about finding treat, finding medication that will work long-term. Residential, for the people who were in residential who were there for longer stays, we had really the luxury of being able to work closely with the, the whole treatment team, the psychiatrist included, and be able to say, okay, this is what we think will have a quick effect early on for always prioritizing the client's needs and values. This is what we think will have a quick effect. And then over time, being able to see the, the lived impact of that, what the client could tolerate well, what, was, what were the impacts as well as any potential side effects, and adjust that was really only possible when people were in treatment long-term. You know, some of the medications will take four to six weeks before you really even see what the effects are going to be. So recognizing medication is also a, a trial and error process that can be absolutely vital, both for the eating disorder in particular, but also for any underlying comorbidity, any underlying depression or anxiety, helping with that will help reduce the person's need to use the eating disorder to cope um, because they're better able to deal with with the underlying baseline um, struggles of life. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's where it brings back the relational aspect is this understanding that just because your loved one is on medication, it doesn't mean that that medication is the fix. You know, uh, and I think that that's something that I often see. They're like, well, you know, this person acted out today and then said, then it's like, well, are you on your meds? And if you say, yes, I took my meds and they're like, okay, cool, then you should be fine. You know, and it's not, it, it's the, the misconception I'm, I'm, I'm feeling is that medication equals the cure. And, and that's not the case. There's so many layers. Medication can facilitate a recovery process, but it definitely isn't the be all and end all. And, um, and I th- think that this is probably one of the things that you might explore or maybe have already explored in the psychoeducation program that you're starting. So I would love to know a little bit more about this program. Yeah, I'm working on putting together a Psychoed program for family members, particularly of people with eating disorders, again, focusing on that kind of adult age that would have a bunch of information about what do levels of care mean? When do people need to go into different levels of care? What even is an eating disorder? What isn't an eating disorder? Um, What can we expect at each of the different levels of care? And um, how do we tolerate that? Um, How do we develop a treatment team that we trust? And how do we support our loved one in finding that treatment team? How do we, I mean, ultimately, a lot of it comes down to what can you be aware of around diet culture, around um, your loved one's behaviors so that you're staying in that supportive place, 
staying out of enabling or controlling, you're staying in that supportive place. And ultimately, how do we create a long-term, how do we co-create with our family with the eating disorder? How do we co-create a, a immediate and long-term recovery process where we're not just focused on what do we do at different times, but how do we continue that dialogue as a unit so that as life changes, as we change, we're not suddenly thrown off kilter because the strategies we used didn't work, but we're really focused on how do we develop, how do we communicate, how do we develop those strategies on an ongoing basis? Um, how do we, sometimes I'll say, how to just walk all over those eggshells. How do we learn to walk on the eggshells instead of trying to avoid them <laughs> and everybody be able to just recognize there's eggshells all over the place and we're doing it anyway <laughs> and get to the other side of that. I love that because so often there's just this idea of it's, it's such a fragile topic, you know, it's such a taboo topic. And it's like, well, I don't want to offend her by asking her if she threw up when she went to the bathroom after that meal. And I don't want to offend her by, or him or whatever. So so it's definitely a lovely piece of advice to someone supporting a loved one is just recognize that the eggshells are there and you're going to crunch them. So just walk on them. <laughs> and with that, what is some of the advice that you may have or just a nugget of hope or something that you'd like to give someone who is trying to support their loved one in eating disorder recovery? Uh, the biggest piece of advice I would give is forget you knew anything about diet and nutrition and health. Just pretend like you are on an alien island and you have no idea how these bodies work. You know nothing. Forget everything you thought you knew and be curious. I love that your podcast is called Curious About Recovery. <laughs> be curious. Be curious about what is prompting the person to do the things they're doing. I try to avoid why because that can just turn into, you know, uh, never-ending analysis. But what, what, what was prompting them? What was happening? What does that feel like to them? Be curious about diet culture, be curious about where these messages come from. Be curious about how they impact you as well as the, the family member with the eating disorder. Be curious about why you think the way that you think. And the more the conversations shift from, well, here's what has to be done or here's why to, huh, what's that about? The more you're opening up possibilities and learning and staying in a an interactive place and much less likely to get into a controlling or stuck or cornering each other and rigid um, place. And I think the other thing is take care of yourself. Oh my gosh, the, the fear and the, it's so scary and hard and, and grueling. It's long-term for many people take care of yourself. It's a lovely message. And I'm, I'm glad you love the curious nature of this whole process. Because, you know, for me, when I think of curiosity, I think of it as our purest selves. You know, um, when we're children, when we're, when we're young babies, whatever, we, we want to find things out. 
and we don't have these limits or these fears or these whatevers and we're just curious about them you know I'm just going to wrap up and say thank you so much for being on the show um, if you could just leave us with some information about how we can get in touch with you how we can find you yeah um, my website is probably the easiest way and that is cardinalpointstherapy.com points is plural so cardinalpointstherapy.com. Thank you so much. This Thank was you so much. I yeah. so enjoyed talking yeah. with you and um, exploring this. And thank you. I, I appreciated this opportunity. It's been lovely to have you and you've shared some incredible insight and I will be in touch. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. If you have liked it, share it with people who you think might benefit from listening to it as well. Don't forget to go to my Instagram page called at Curious About Recovery to find out about upcoming episodes or to browse the episodes of the past. You can also follow my page called at Kirsten Honeyball where you can get inspiration for your eating disorder recovery. 